Hi everyone. In the final episode of this series, we spoke to a best-selling author and award-winning comic, Dave Chorno. Our conversation particularly focused around his book, Weight Expectations, and its experiences with anorexia. As ever, if you enjoyed the episode, please give it a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi Dave, how are you? Very good, thank you. Yeah, ticking along. All good. It's it's a nice sunny day, so I can't complain. How about you? Yeah, I'm very well, thanks. Um, just to kind of start things off, what what's your kind of personal experience in in and around mental health? So I suppose my, I actually it's a great question because I think my opening to mental health was in 2006 when very precise (laughs) well i only know that because yesterday i stumbled uh across it stephen fry did a documentary i think it was called bipolar and me or something like that and i remember this is like the, the, the days before uh netflix and streaming and all of those kind of things and I remember going to school and everybody had watched it. And I remember just that was the first time that anyone had really talked about um, mental health. And and I suppose it's kind of like interesting. That I, I knew that, uh, you know, organs of the body could, uh, you know, be healthy and functioning well and they could be bad and functioning badly. But I'd never thought of the brain as something really that you, you know, you had to look after. And the fact that he talked about his uh, bipolar was incredible and I remember saying to my mom and not like pointing fingers at all I was like some of the stuff that he says really resonates with me and my mom kind of said you know uh well you know we all get down sometimes it's all good and like and I suppose that was sort of the first time that I'd ever really thought about my own uh mental health and eventually over time what started to happen was um I started to restrict, I started to exercise more and more, I started to calorie count, was weighing myself, was constantly going on walks and eventually I kind of tied myself up in this knot that I didn't identify at the time as anorexia and over the sort of years people around me noticed before I did and it was only uh, it was only until I got to sort of university through a very long story um, and a, a chain of events that I realised that I had uh, anorexia. And then it took me even longer to accept that, and then even longer to engage with help. Okay, so you think it was quite that you 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 had your difficulties for a long time, but without really realizing what they were because I think quite a lot of people with um with depression have that as well where they know something isn't quite right with them um but maybe the symptoms manifest themselves as something quite physical so they 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 don't associate it with being a kind of mental health issue is that a fairly similar thing to what happened to you yeah couldn't agree more you see the thing is I always say that it developed rather than started which isn't actually that weird because you know for example like if you wanted to if you needed to get your eyes 
checked if you needed to get your your vision checked it's not like one day you wake up and you're like oh yeah yeah need an eye check you know you might start to have headaches things might start to be a little blurry you might ask people can you see that oh no i can't see that so it takes a while it's not like something that you instantly notice yet the thing that annoys me around the narrative of mental health is there seems to be this omniscient understanding that you have a mental illness that seems to be the thing and the, the solution of course we're told is the two works two words of just simply just talk like you're meant to know innately what to say but i think it takes a while to realize that something might just be a little bit out of kilter a little bit wonky upstairs yeah i think what you said about the the kind of advice being you know just talk you know if you engage with people it will get better is quite an interesting one at the moment because it feels like that stuff or in from my perspective it feels like that stuff has kind of been done like the kind of whole awareness aspect the whole kind of idea of breaking down a stigma is kind of finished and that actually you know the more you keep talking about it being a stigma the more that is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy and actually the conversation needs to move on a bit from that now I, I couldn't agree more. I, that's why I hate the term stigma, because the more you talk about something, uh, I always say the more you talk about something, even in negation, the more you entrench it. So that a great example is if I said to you, you know, don't think uh, of a blue pig, uh, then, you know, you think of David Cameron. It's that kind of thing. That, like, it's, always as, <laughs> it's always like a great example. If someone says, I don't want to be racist, but you know that the next thing coming out of their mouth is like, all right, Danny Baker. And I, I think it's that sort of thing that really gets me of like, we need to lead with a strong arm. And I think it's lazy and I think it's recyclable to say, oh, it's that blooming stigma. I actually think it's more entrenched, intricate and difficult than that, because actually one of the first diagnostic criteria of pretty much any mental illness is an inability to communicate. The sort of uh, it generally affects the cerebral cortex, which is the centre of your brain near to the language centre, um, and communication becomes harder. So actually saying just talk, I find, um, I don't want to be a snowflake about it. I don't want to be, you know, uh, obsequious and kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't say that. But I, I think it's a very reductive, flippant thing that is said in order to help the person saying it rather than the person that needs to be said. Because the truth of the matter is, it's icky, it's sticky, it's difficult and complex. And actually, if you understand that, if you get that, it's even more difficult to say, you know what, like, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. We've got to try loads of different avenues, loads of different options and see what works for you. That is a lot less palatable to most people than saying, oh, I'll just talk about it. Isn't it. Going back to what you just said on what works for you, how did, um, when you started to recover or, you know, when you, the process of getting better, how did that start for you? It, interesting. So my route to getting better um, started. So basically, the reason I got anorexia was I uh, worked down in uh, deepest, darkest Devon. And I got a job over the summer holidays um, being a uh, sort of a substitute teacher, essentially, uh, but for an international school. So a lot of uni students used to do it. And the weirdest thing about it was it was uh, three miles from the local village. 
and all of the food that was there was pizza, pasta, chips. Uh, there was no like healthy options. There were no calories on the side of package, and there were no there was nowhere that you could cater for yourself. And I was even astounded myself how much I freaked out. I, I stopped being able to sleep, so I started exercising during the night and then when I did eventually get to sleep I was having nightmares about meals I was kind of skipping meals and then because I'd gone so long I was uh, binging and then I was like purging and and one of the teachers was very openly said oh you know I think I've got bulimia I find this really difficult have you ever had anorexia and the fact that someone asked me rather than told me was huge for me and and it took me a while to even though I'd accepted that it took me a while to enter treatment it was like a a good six years and the reason was I kind of worked on this downward spiral where I never felt anorexic enough I was never like you know sort of minutes away from death I never had this tragic storyline but the, the 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 thing that really got me was what's medically known as uh, constant cessation of mood so I had no mood whatsoever and things in my life and my career were going beautifully wonderfully incredibly well and I just uh, I was completely ambivalent to the whole thing and it was actually when I got to do my, my biggest sort of goal in comedy has always been to do the, the comedy store. That's always been my uh, sort of goal. And I got the opportunity to, to do a gig there, to compare a night there. And I remember I got off stage uh, and it had been brilliant. And I sort of like I hugged Catherine Ryan goodbye and she went her way. And I was sitting in the dressing room and I was all on my own. And I just felt nothing. Um, and I felt absolutely nothing. And so I went to the doctor. Um, and even then, when I spoke to the doctors, they said, you know, well, we'll probably have to treat the anorexia. And I knew the path that I was taking. I knew um, that anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. And I knew what would happen. And I sort of take, I said, take the depression away, not the anorexia. And through a long period of things, uh, a woman got the, one of the, so a psychologist got really hardball with me and she said look you're not going to be able to treat the anorexia without the depression you wouldn't expect your laptop to work if you didn't charge it um so you've really got to think about that and that's how i ended entering treatment yeah i think f- from what you said that kind of numbness to experience is something i definitely experienced with depression that kind of feeling that you're kind of looking out at the world but you 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 can't really engage with it um and i think the idea of i think i have a a similar thing with um with the pain and and for me the the pain and the mental illness are in a cycle um so if i the way i went about it was to target the depression first so once that got better the pain kind of gets better but once something interrupts that cycle both of them can be put out of kilter so how how have you is is it a similar thing for you and how how do you manage that i think yeah i mean i can't speak for chronic pain but it does seem diff like it seems similar and actually i don't know if this helps but someone once said to me uh the opposite of depression isn't happiness uh, the opposite of depression is energy. 
and I, I really that really resonated with me because I was becoming more and more remiss in my own life. I kind of was taking a backseat on everything, uh, and then I started taking uh, antidepressants and. Uh, it, it's really interesting because, again, people, you know, commonly call them happy pills. And I was, I was ready for that. I was ready. And, oh, you know, I'll take these and it'll, it'll be like ecstasy. But it wasn't. It, it helped me cope. It was me helping myself, which was I, I found incredibly empowering. And yes, I am still on them. And a yeah, huge uh, and very tiny little change that I've made only recently because, you know, sort of uh, last November. So that's, you know, sort of about four months ago at the time of recording. Uh, I started to feel a little bit of a dip. And someone said to me, have you ever started taking vitamin D? And that has really helped bolster my my mood. So I, I think you I think you're always on a constant learning of, of, of how to help. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and. And when you started to talk about the problems you'd had with um, with anorexia, what was what was the kind of reaction like in in the I suppose in the comedy world in um, within people in your own personal life? It's really interesting because when I um, started to talk about the anorexia, I think you can talk around something without talking about it. And I wasn't really engaging in the actual nuts and bolts of it. I was kind of like very much circling the drain. And uh, there was there seemed to be a huge interest in the fact that I was talking about it. But I also uh, will be completely honest that I kind of created a rod for my own back because um Anorexia is tricky. I, you know, I find that all mental illnesses are tricky, and that's not uh, a unique trait to anorexia. But one of the things is, it wasn't about an aesthetic for me. It wasn't really even about the uh, the, the weight loss, or that it was about being good enough, about having a handle on something, about actually being able to to cope. And so whenever I sort of said to people, you know, I've got anorexia, they'd always go, oh, really? Uh, you know, and you get the odd people sort of saying, oh, you, you know, you don't look anorexic. And look, that wasn't through any form of malice or anything to sort of shoot me down. All they meant was you don't look like the sort of pictures that have been portrayed to us in the media. Um, but that caused me to go off and engage in more harmful activities to restrict longer to exercise uh more and it kind of yeah talking about it very openly did lead me to uh relapse hugely and worse than i'd ever done before and i kind of knew the the sort of route that i was taking and i think i think it was at first incredibly damaging but also beautifully liberating as well, because I was given uh, a unique opportunity to really think about this stuff that people, when they're going to like nine to five jobs, they don't have the time to sort of sit there staring out the window going, mm, what's going on in my little brain bomb? So it was it was wonderful, but it was also, yeah, very psychologically harmful. That's really interesting because a lot of people say that you know they do say that it's really liberating when they come out and talk about about their mental health issues but but don't say that 
um, that actually it made them it made them have a dip in in their in their symptoms. Uh, mine mine hugely did, and I am very nervous uh, for the way that the mental health community is going because the thing that frustrates me really now is that we always say mental health when actually we mean mental illness and you know people sort of talk about their mental health and generally they're only talking about their mental illness and you know sort of people talking about uh depression and all of this sort of stuff and i think that also again creates a rub for their own back of if that ever hits again they kind of feel that they have to double down of like, I've recovered from this. I'm over this. I'm an ambassador for change. So instead of authentically saying, yeah, I feel pretty rubbish, to be honest, I see that kind of fake it till you make it stuff. And the truth of the matter is that saying you don't have mental health is like saying that there isn't any weather there's always going to be weather out there it's just dependent on what that climate is is like and um that's why i'm now really careful to talk about mental health and to talk about general mental health rather than my own because i think sometimes if you inwardly stare at something too much, you can lose all sense of perspective. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, although you may have recovered from the worst bit of it, that doesn't mean you're on a kind of upward tra- traje- trajectory the whole time. It can go up and down and you can have weeks, maybe months where where it's not perfect, but um, but you may have equipped yourself with the things that make you get better in the long run. Um, and so how did how did writing a book about anorexia come about so that first year so the book came about because the first year when I was in Edinburgh I I did this show about the uh, anorexia and it it caused me to like relapse uh, sort of quite hugely but um, I I had uh, strangely personally was having a terrible time but um, sort of professionally at that point in time it was it was lovely and I sort of got awarded uh this um uh, award uh at the Houses of Parliament and a publisher sort of approached me and said look you know sort of blokes don't really talk about uh sort of anorexia that much um would you you know sort of would you like to write a book for us and we sort of entered into negotiation and I will be entirely honest it was something that I balked at and my first reaction was no in fact no because I didn't want people kept on saying oh you've got to tell your story and something that I'm very uncomfortable with is the the use of the word my uh, in that sentence I didn't want to people to look at me and think, oh, he's trying to use his mental illness in order to, to be on Big Brother or to be famous. Or, and, and, and you know what? Like, I kind of, to be honest, I, I have sympathy for that um, mindset that, yeah, I can understand why people sort of say, oh, you know, it's a, a short uh, shortcut to getting famous. And, and I didn't, I wasn't ready for that kind of like, uh, you know, acerbicness. 
So I really had to think about it. But the thing that the only reason that I could and the only way that I could level it in my head was I wanted to write the book that I wanted when I was 17. So I kind of doubled down on the selfishness by kind of going, I'm going to write the book that I need. And what I needed when I was 17, two, two of the most important things for me uh, about it was one was that uh it was it was meant to be fun. It was meant to be funny. It was meant to be silly and engaging. As a teenager, I used to read people like Dave Gorman, uh, Danny Wallace, and all of those kind of cool books. And I just thought, you know what? Instead of it all being a sob story, instead of it being a woe me and kind of pity seeking, if it was funny and kind of cool, they'd be all right. Um, so that was something that was really important was the tone. But also, secondly, as well, I didn't want it to just be a bland. This is my story, because let's be honest, I ain't Kerry Katona. I'm not Katie Price. I haven't really done anything that people are going to go. Oh, that Dave Chorner. Oh, yeah. I want to read about him. What I genuinely wanted, needed and looked for when I was a teenager was actual tangible coping mechanisms, not the regurgitated words and phrases like oh just talk and you know oh it's always darker before the story i actually wanted things like right okay count back from 10 get out exercise have you done the five ways to wellness have you thought about looking at your emotions on a spectrum all of those tangible things that you can give to people and even really simple things like my housemate that I used to live with is a wonderful guy I love him to bits and I've lived with him for nine years at that point uh, which is longer than most marriages and he was very very ill and he was put on a uh, suicide watch and I was his suicide watch and I said Rich I said mate we've been through so much together why couldn't you talk to me why couldn't you let me know what was going on and I'll never forget he said because I didn't know what I had to say like when you always said like what's going on how do you feel that's difficult so instead of asking questions like that asking like look if you're on a scale of one to ten you know one being rubbish ten being great what number do you feel that's easy that's tangible that's manageable and I wanted to give those kind of coping mechanisms, actual things that real people could do rather than like some sort of hippy dippy hemp wearing and you're listening sort of regurgitated stuff. That kind of brings me on to the, the last question that I've got, which is at the moment, how do you look after your your mental health personally? Really good question. So I think. Firstly, it's most important to outline that um, mental health is is always in flux. It's fleeting. I think the best way that anyone ever explained it to me is that they said that your emotions are a a lot like the weather. So my mum was right with that Stephen Fry thing. Yes, your, your emotions do change constantly two or three times a day, but your mental health is a lot like the climate. Uh, And so, you know, things can be rainy, windy, whatever, they change, but it's actually your mental health is the stuff behind emotions. Um, And I think knowing that is really, really helpful and focusing on that is really, really useful. At the moment, uh, I'm really trying to do that and trying to see through the cut through and um, 
get more of a sort of perspective on that. So, but the, the second thing that I was going to say as well is that I've found, at least for me, mental health is a lot about patterns. And I'm trying to pick up these patterns of behaviors that lead me either down a favorable or a less favorable path. And some of them are really seemingly inconsequential. So, for example, I've found that when things are messy in the flat, like really messy, I generally feel a little bit more out of order. I don't really feel on top of stuff. But equally, I've also found that whenever I'm writing or working, I can work in the morning from home okay, but then it really helps me to go and work from a coffee shop or somewhere else. So it's all about those patterns and realising that nobody's actually born with a manual of how your brain is meant to work and how it works best. And constantly checking in with it, almost like a mate, and realising that as you develop and grow, different things will come along, different things will be helpful or challenging. Um, and without being too chintzy about it, trying to check in with that and going, oh, how's this better working? How's this good? And right now, I'm trying not to drink in the week, which is a huge challenge for me. And genuinely, like three or four years ago, I, I, I wouldn't have been able to go a day, let alone anything else. So I think it's kind of, I think the biggest thing is one of the things that's really helping me is to see that as a challenge, as something fun and making it engaging and enjoyable rather than seeing it as dull, boring homework. Well, that's a really interesting perspective to have on it. I think I think what you said about routine is is quite key as well. Like there's a lot of research to say that once you get in a good routine, you can get that kind of positive feedback cycle going with your mental health but I think seeing it as a challenge is is a really good way of looking at it because so many people you know um, see it as a kind of a chore to do I don't know their CBT that day because it's not particularly enjoyable or you know if they're into kind of mindfulness they see it as something they have to do each day because it you know they think it will make them better but if you're doing something you enjoy you're going to be doing it more often and you're going to enjoy it so that's going to kind of feed into you getting better anyway well it's like it's something i always say like especially with my therapy and this isn't for everyone but i love therapy i thought it was amazing it was incredible it was so much fun because i used it as like a stupid boy project like dave gorman or danny wallace would do to try things that hopefully might help my mental health um that you know some of them were disastrous and really beautifully so but also some of them were really challenging for example one of the seats in my anorexia was I never liked being uh, a man I never liked being a sexually active man purely because I, I was always fed this narrative that if you are a sexually active cisgendered white man you are you're kind of evil you know what I mean like you're always I mean most of the people in history are those kind of backgrounds and I always thought that if you you know if you go out and you're trying to uh you know flirt with someone men are always leches men are always you know one above uh, a, a guard dog they're always kind of trying to get into women's pants and that's terrible and having a sex drive makes you awful uh, and my my sort of therapist was brilliant because she said well that, that's not true and you know what like 
women enjoy being sexually liberated as well so like little things like flirting and and you know without really too much detail but like sexually experimenting and being loving with that and sort of seeing what worked and I was like oh my goodness this is amazing and I you know it, it led me to the disastrous places and wondrous places and it was it was fun and it was uh silly and exactly the same with you know trying out new things like you know going to see gigs and being like oh I actually don't really like ballet that was pretty rubbish but it was you know it was a good positive experience and instead of seeing my life as a chore that had to be done for the first time actually seeing my life as just a finite time where I could just like muck about and try and build something that I wanted to keep at the end of it rather than wanted to throw away at the age of 23. Yeah I think that's a a pretty good place to wrap things up. Um, Where can we find out more about you know the work that you do, the book, um, all of that kind of stuff? Oh well that's very kind. Uh, So the book's on sale, you can buy it in Waterstones or uh, all good bookshops uh, which is a nice way of saying if they don't sell my book they're rubbish um so you can buy it on amazon as well it's called weight expectations uh lovely little pun i originally wanted to call it the real hunger games but they wouldn't allow me to do that um and i'm also uh like my website is davechorner.co.uk and all of my gigs and stuff is on there brilliant thank you very much dave that's been really interesting Thank you, mate. Thank you so much for quite. I really appreciate it, mate. Thanks for listening to this series. As ever, although the things Dave and I talked about we may find helpful, we're not trained medical experts. If you're struggling, please contact your local GP or call an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.